0: Hello, hárje! heard you. It was five chick a genie a granilish a gran special to the Nalak. In this tús is the and my Johnny. Hello, Johnny. Hello, hello. Go much as I a large Jiruisha or him see runch kiru yenu or in the nosena, it is tradition. a will la laugh in the Blynnilshah, failing in Féileadh a shiúl anuas a chur rúis sé cheann go dona i griann na stiúil at linn an Fall bríathar i gach in the véicne muid fós agus You join us for a very special festive edition of Blarney Bellages today, folks, as Johnny and myself set out to take a critical look at one of the most prominent and beloved festivals in the Irish calendar year, Christmas, naturation and Now overtaken somewhat by the rampant commercialism of the modern age and held for ransom by an overweight home intruder with a penchant for mince pies, this midwinter festival has transformed in recent decades. But this transformation is nothing new. The story of Christmas and the festive period, as we'll come to see today, has long been one of change and rebirth. From its pagan roots as a midwinter festival of worship and propitiation of the gods of the natural world, to its rebirth as the Christian celebration we recognise today, Its journey tells a very human story of a people looking to a volatile, uncertain world around them and seeking desperately for meaning and security. Much like we're still doing today, Johnny. Indeed, I think every day. Quite appropriate. Looking for light, metaphorically and figuratively speaking, in the harsh darkness of the long winter season. Although much of the early traditions have long since faded and newer associations have taken their place, as happens, and rightly so, as always with folklore, But there's still a great deal of this ancient symbolism and evidence in our modern observances if we know what to look for patterns which can be traced not only across the island of ireland but further afield internationally as well and that's the beauty of folklore as we always say here don't we johnny in that it provides the key if you like to look at these practices to unlock a deeper understanding of why we do the things we do when we do them why do we light candles in our windows on christmas eve why do we choose holly and ivy for decoration why do carrymen men dress in masks and wander the streets on St Stephen's day with a dead bird while Finns ride abroad that day on horses? Or at least they used to. Curious yet, Johnny? Mm-hmm. Good, that's what we like. So in the hour ahead, Johnny and I hope to get you all in the festive spirit with the answer to these questions as well as with some other, we hope, surprising and perhaps thought-provoking ideas about this familiar festival. All at once ancient and yet still full of youthful exuberance, a bit like ourselves. Marked by light and darkness, I don't know why you're laughing, Johnny. Marked by light and darkness, endings and new beginnings. So let's begin at the beginning and head back to the pagan revellers of yesteryear as they celebrated not the jolly old Saint Nick, god of gift giving we know today, but rather another figure, Saturn.
1: Fantastic. Well, I think for the longest time, the winter kind of solstice period has been one of the most important festival traditions in in Europe, not just Northern Europe, but across Europe and further afield even. And so lots of the customs and traditions and the, bit of the details he alluded to there and pointed to, they come from this fantastic kind of panoply of different customs, and some of them pagan, some of them pre-Christians, some of them um, kind of Nordic and Germanic traditions and folkloric traditions and so on. And it's the combination of all these things that, that are kind of, in this synthesis, that, that live with us today. And when you start to pick them apart, it's fantastic, this kind of strange tapestry of saints and deities and, and Roman gods and we've had and such fun, gods. haven't we? Oh it's it's amazing. It's, it's fantastic. It's so interesting. and um, but there's something quite moving about it, a lot of the symbolism and stuff that I find as well. And overall I suppose the like you were alluding to there and mentioning the, the, the kind of the, the, the message at this time I suppose and you have to imagine it in the context of pre-industrialised society where there's the in winter the days are at their at their shortest, mm-hmm. the kind of darkness reigns for this period and around the time of the winter Solstice it's a period of, of enormous acceleration and the idea of the victory of the sun over the dark, the unconquerable sun, uh, sol invictus, and so on, and the idea of the return of the sun, and the the general consensus or the general consensus largely have having been that, that that the roots of the midwinter festival lie in a kind of fertility rite. this is the kind of the, the the idea that seems to manifest basically, and so the main festivals that we that Christmas comes to us today, and you can see the earlier kind of roots in two pre-Christian, pagan um, uh, festivals, one of which is Saturnalia, uh, and the other of which is, is Yule, uh, the kind of the Nordic pagan um, um, tradition. And so Saturnalia is this kind of hilarious, is some of the, the aspects and components to it, period of, of kind of orgiastic revelry and, an, and a kind of undoing of the social order, basically. And this was a festi- festivity that was dedicated to the god Saturn, who has a kind of long and complex history, really, in in, uh, in Roman tradition. And the, the god Saturn was, was believed to live under the temple of Saturn in, in Rome. And on the 17th of December, this, this festival ran from the 17th to the 23rd of December, so it was a kind of um, week long kind of festivity largely. And on this day, on the 17th of December, all kind of normal uh, activities would, would cease. Schools would close, law courts would close. and People on that day in particular had to forego their kind of th- their the normal attire, and they'd wear these tunics. They'd wear kind of casual wear, basically. But not just the ordinary people; the great and the good would do. The senators and politicians they'd have to wear the kind of the lowly clothes. So everyone was kind of normalised across the, the strict kind of caste system was kind of undone. Mm. That the high dressed like the low, basically, and, and as ad- additional to that, they also wore um this kind of conical leather cap, the peleus. The, the Liberty Cap, which is where there's the, the magic mushrooms are often called Liberty Caps. They have that kind of bell, kind of golden shape to them. It's from this this old hat.
0: I don't know what magic mushrooms are, Johnny. Well, what was, are was, you talking, talking about?
1: Talking. <laughs> it's, it's a name that's still used today. It's the Liberty Caps for, the, oh, for these. Really? Kind oh of, I've never. Heard it's of so the Peleus was like this this kind of um, leather cap that was worn by freed slaves to show that their status that they had been slaves but now they are freed slaves and they'd wear this cap. But on Saturnalia on the seventeenth of the first day, everyone in in Rome would wear these caps. Oh, so the, there's this
0: great sense of democratization is there yeah, on that there's the, there's the,
1: there's the undoing of the, of the kind of the strict rigor of the of the the social order It's kind of undone basically and so master and slave the the, the lines are blurred basically and so on that day uh, at the temple of saturn a huge crowd would assemble there was, a priest would make a sacrifice to, to the god and then some of the senators would step forward and they'd take an enormous wooden statue of saturn and they'd walk it down to the roman forum to this open area where there's huge banquet tables and everything set and they'd lay the statue of saturn on a couch on a kind of reclining couch okay. um, and then they'd commence these festivities and so you'd have um, thousands of people out in the square having this enormous feast with saturn kind of overlooking the whole thing Methodist. saturn is the god of kind of um, of of crops and of wealth and the, the word kind of satiated, to be satiated kind mm. of comes from, from kind of term of fullness and bounty and so on. Yeah. And so an enormous feast would commence, um, there'd be kind of eating and drinking and so on, there'd be gladiatorial uh, exploits, but they again would invert the normal social order, you'd have um, women gladiators fighting each other or dwarves and so on and so forth, right? So it was this kind of strange scene that people kind of gathered to watch and you'd have all aspects of the social cast mingling together on this, on this day. And then after that, people would would kind of engage in in parties and revelry throughout the night. Would this All last for
0: that that period, the seventeenth until the twenty third? this is the first. This is the first day so oh far. Oh God! So this is just the first day.
1: <laughs> Excuse me. This is day one. Day one. There's quite a way yet to go. So, um, the, the the revelers would kind of would would lurk through the streets, basically in a kind of in drunken revelry, and the greeting that they gave to one another was "Yo Saturnalia," and you'd call back "Yo Saturnalia." This is this is the kind of greeting that everyone gave at this time. Um, then there would be parties in the houses, the, there would be, the king of Saturnalia would be, um, what is it, Saturnalia, princeps, I think, the, the king of Saturnalia would be elected at the party, but it was often, say, the, sl- the slave, or a child, who would be elected, and they'd be the king, and everyone had to do what they'd say, but they'd say kind of joke things like, um, let's drink some more, or everyone do a stupid dance, or something like that, it was I all a kind of in, in good humour, basically. Um, slaves would have their dinner served by their masters often, even though they'd have to make it themselves. Mm. Or ma- master and slave would eat together, and the formalities are kind of broken down. There's a sense of goodwill. There was an enormous sense of of um, of gift giving. That people would purchase what was called the sigillaria, these little waxen dolls that you'd get for everyone. But everyone had to get a gift from everyone. There was an enormous amount of get- gift giving oh, of calling so it wasn't from house just to house.
0: One gift per person. It was you'd actually everyone have... you know, you would expect to get That's one. And everyone obvious. you know, you'd have
1: to you'd have to give one. Basically, these little little gifts. So there's this process kind of, of giving and exchanging these gifts and conning around from house to house and feasting and excess and revelry. So the, kind of the overall theme you have, I suppose, is this loosening of the social bonds. And that's something that's very common with calendar custom where you undo the ties that bind, mm. but you do it to, to reaffirm them. Kind yes. of. And you can engage for a brief period of time in, in behaviours that you'd never be able to uh, usually. So that was, that was one of the kind of characteristic aspect, aspects of, of Saturnalia, this sense of kind of feasting, of excess, of revelry, um, and on the, on the 19th, I think, of December they had the feast to Saturn's wife, Ops, where you get the term kind of um, opulence and so on, exactly. and she had a festivity towards kind of crops and so on in, in the year, but there was also a feast day to her to give thanks for the, the grain that was all stored in the barn, and people would have further excesses and more kind of food and so on and so forth. So the whole, lots of the aspects of kind of the, the loosening of the social bonds, a sense of kind of goodwill among men, as it were, um, gift giving and travelling from house to house and the kind of revelry manifests from, from Saturnalia um, and that was kind of instituted as, as an official the, the largest kind of Roman holidays and those customs were then brought by Roman invaders to places across Europe and Britain and so on so you see those customs begin to but they're very
0: familiar house. already to us, aren't they? The feasting and the going from house to house. Yes, yeah,
1: they, they are. The revelry, we're yeah. kind
0: of, we'll see that again as we go through the hour. That's, again and again. That's interesting. And
1: there are, even, there are strange things to link in the Saturnalia. To, to Again, it's always interesting to see how these aspects link in even to older festivals or even the Indo-European traditions. There is the Mahavarat, which is the, the, the Hindu win- winter solstice festival. And there's a reference in the the Journal of Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, a journal from 1915, and it mentions a kind of tenuous, at least, link, um, or a small link, which is interesting to note, at least, of the similar sense of this role between master and slave, a hierarchy being undone in the very rigid Hindu caste system, where the Brahmin and aspect, and people from the Sudras, the highest and lowest castes, would um, kind of struggle in this symbolic struggle as part of a fertility right. There's, this, there's a, a piece here It says, that the rite was held at the winter solstice in December. It was not a festival of sowing, but one intended to quicken the fertility of the earth, mm. and one of its chief features was the dance of the maidens bearing pitchers of water. No one would expect that a Vedic rite, duly ordered by the Brahmins, would present us with the license of the Roman Saturnalia as recorded in the texts of Augustine and later periods, but even in the completely formalized version of the Vedic texts, there are traces of an unexpected prominence of the Sudras, those are the lowest of the low, the, kind of the okay. lowest of the castes. The maidens are Dasis, female slaves, and an Aryan strives with the Sudra over a skin which is shaped to be a symbol of the sun. So so the noble, someone from the highest caste, struggles with someone from the lowest. The Aryan is, of course, victor, but the mere fact that the struggle occurs shows the popular character of the rite, and its open and avowed fertility magic deepens the impression. So there's the idea that even in this Hindu uh, midwinter solstice festival, there's a reference to kind of master and slave struggling with one another in order to... Uh, bring about this kind of fertility magic, as this symbolic idea. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting kind of side. It's difficult to posit any huge. True as some it. things
0: are, but it's interesting to note, isn't it?
1: A, but it points as well, I guess, even to to the, the the fundamental importance of the the winter solstice as this hugely um, important period I guess, for our forebears, for our ancestors. Even if you look beyond Saturnalia and Mahavarat and Yule and so on, back to the to the to the people who lived here. Well, this thousands is and thousands of years ago, um, across Great Britain and, and Ireland, across uh, Europe, and the stone circles or passage tombs, like Newgrange, is aligned to, to light up at the winter solstice. And
0: Stonehenge, Ex- yeah, exactly. because we just yeah. see the significance it must have had for them. Exactly. The that. You, that and place. you can you
1: can imagine the sense of the kind of the return of the sun, basically. So that's the, I guess in in many senses the symbolic, kind of character. On the twenty fifth of December in in Rome, you had um, Sol Invictus, the, the unconquerable sun. There was there was the. The kind of feast day of the god of the sun, basically that kind of, and that has connections then to, to again later Christian tradition and trying to map these on to pre-Christian yeah, which or, origins, won't we? Yeah, in in a, in a tradition, I mean that you know the birth of Christ wasn't celebrated until uh, until much later in an attempt to kind of co-opt and and incorporate these these kind of pre-Christian and pagan traditions. But the overall theme that we see is one of um kind of regeneration, goodwill, and an, an upending of of the social order mm. uh, in Saturnalia.
0: And the return of light as well. The do return you, do, of light, Do you yeah. see that in Saturnalia? I know we see it much later and again in our kind of modern traditions of the emphasis that we would have placed on the symbolism of candles and mm. lights and candles with um, St. Lucia in Sweden. Yeah. But do you see evidence of that in Saturnalia? Um,
1: not explicitly, but you what you do see is, again, on the 25th of December, you have the Roman feast dedicated to Sol Invictus. Um, where you have the, the day of the unconquerable sun, Sorry. and that's that celebration. It's after that period where the, the you know, there's the, the, the celebration of the return of the unconquerable sun. It's kind of unquenchable flame, this light of lights, basically. And I think that that fundamental importance, again, because these kind of symbolic and um, um, mythic truths are ultimately related to very, very deep um, expressions of... of being in and nature are born out of out of a response to, to nature and the natural world, and then they become that kind of wisdom becomes incarnateness and manifests as these as these um, symbolic expressions basically. So,
0: because we take so much for granted in the sense that we've got electricity and we've got absolutely. So now to us, candles are quaint little ideas. Mm. But even before candles, they were in darkness. And I mean,
1: imagine you can imagine. I mean, the time. Or
0: you can't even imagine. Yeah, like, I suppose. Is, you know, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, but ha- how much of the day would have been in dark, mm. how little work could be done. Um,
0: and in northern, in the northern hemisphere, f- the further north, can yeah. you imagine how yeah. little sunlight you would see?
1: Yeah, ice and cold and snow mm. and, and dark, this is this is that time. I remember chatting with a friend of mine uh, not so long ago when the electricity went in our house in the wintertime. We were sitting in the kitchen chatting by a candle, had a great chat for, for a couple of hours, and by the time it was done, I thought, God, what time is it now? Is it like 11 o'clock at night or something like that? Yeah. And it was eight. Eight <laughs> or half eight. Not, it, it felt t- totally pitch black. Not, it felt like time for bed. You yeah. know, it's t- everything kind of shuts down. When you remove this kind of the the um, you know electrical light and so on, that kind of endless uh, honoredness of the modern world, Whatever, a very different rhythm begins to take And how we regulate this.
0: time and exactly, perceive yeah. time. Yeah.
1: And we've only been doing that for a very, very recent um, um, span of time, if you mm-hmm. think about our, our overall evolution, whatever. Which is why when I come to power, I'm going to ban all electric streetlights. It's my first official move.
0: We have a lot of plans for this dictatorship, Danny. I journey. do, I do. We must discuss in that Indeed. in a later podcast. Indeed. <laughs> so shall we move on to the practicalities of Christmas as yes. we know it, and as our forebears would have known it? Christmas practicalities were a reality in the past as they remain so today. Um, in the days and weeks prior to the festival, early preparations would begin. Um, it's a, kind of something that we still do. Today's the first of December as we're recording this. It'll be available at the beginning of December, but already we're thinking about Christmas presents, hmm. Christmas feasts, Christmas parties. So it's um, a season that brings a lot of festive good cheer, but a lot of heavy lifting and logistics for kind of older members of the family as well. So our forebears would have had this in mind as well. Homes would be thoroughly cleaned and prepared, with many going to great lengths. I've read accounts in, because we actually have a questionnaire in the archive, on Christmas we have three full volumes and then two kind of minor volumes. So actually such interesting material for those who are interested in the broader calendar custom of Christmas. But people went to extreme lengths um, in the recent past of even whitewashing their homes at this period of time, which... I don't know if you've ever whitewashed, Johnny, but it is a god-forsaken practice. Horrible, horrible, um, especially at this time of year. I I found it quite surprising that they would do this when the weather is so tempestuous that yeah, it know, could know, actually yeah. have a deluge of rain at yeah. any moment. And there's nothing worse, believe me, than wa- watching your hard work washed down the street.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Really> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, whitewashing your house in lashing rain.
0: Exactly. I just so to me, it was amazing that they would do this. Um, Kind of more than once in the year but to actually do to Christmas inside and out. Then you've got obviously the preparation of clothing, laundry and um, all the furniture inside. They would have prepared their their best Delph, um for the season ahead. And the Saturday before Christmas we're told in our manuscripts here was referred to as Lion Margumor or the day of the, the big market where people would travel to their nearest town to buy their food supplies I suppose ahead of the the festive season of Christmas Eve mm. and Christmas Day to get their meals and sweet treats would be baked. And as well, we've got to remember that we are absolute, absolutely gluttonous now in our modern um, traditions of the food that we eat and just the consumption of food. Whereas before they were quite mild by comparison. Mm. They wouldn't necessarily have turkey. They might have goose. They might mm. have beef was apparently very common. Um, some of them even reference fish, but I can't remember. I don't think they would have eaten it on Christmas Day but that fish would have been um prominent and again i suppose it's just using what they had what they could afford yeah Well yeah yeah reality. i guess if you
1: look to um to certain yule or Saturnalia celebrations you see rampant or majestic excess so we can look at some yule customs that describe um you know the massacring of animals and horses and people smearing themselves in the, in the blood and eating just enormous amounts of meat so do you this know what kind of consumptive thing has been
0: what period in time you would like to return to and some people say the 1920s and some hmm. people say, Oh, I'd love to be at nineteen yes. sixteen. probably go straight back, with not you? Too?
1: Yeah. I think I would, yeah. <laughs> probably would.
0: Yeah, I'd I love think it. I probably would, yeah. Yeah. Grand. Right. So while we leave you there <laughs> in your revelry, um to finish up on the kind of the preparations and the practical side, animals would have been slaughtered and ready for the meal. But also decoration hmm. is a hugely interesting topic which people would say, Right, you throw up a three. Yeah. but actually when we began looking at the symbolism of this there were some curious points that we thought mm. we'd um, kind of pick up on. So bringing greenery indoors it's it's not something new but it's something that is a custom of great antiquity and has great symbolism. Evergreens were seen as a symbol of undying life we're told mm. in the, kind of the academic articles that we've been reading holly, ivy and mistletoe are probably the most commonly used Christmas decorations and they are very much seen and were seen as life symbols, evergreen, and the fact that they bore fruit in winter Mm. as well as being an unusual trait gave them a greater um, weight, I suppose, in symbolism. So holly with its berries was seen as a masculine symbol, bringing fortune and fertility apparently to a household, while the ivy was feminine and considered a luck symbol. Had mm. you heard that? I
1: hadn't read that as well, yeah. I'd never, I'd no, never I really, hadn't heard before, no. Yeah, I'd hadn't never
0: appreciated pre- before this. And what I quite enjoyed, I'll read you this.
1: Is this the male and female, kind of the prickly holly and the smooth holly?
0: Yes, and she could hang up his breeches.
1: Oh, yes. what's, what's that? I love it.
0: So this is a reference that I found in um, a 1987 article about customs and beliefs associated with Christmas evergreens. And it said that it was customary in the 17th century in parts of Oxfordshire for the maidservant to ask the man for ivy to dress the house. And if the man denies or neglects to fetch the ivy, the maid steals away a pair of his breeches and nails them up to the gate in the yard or the highway.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. So that, that's a
0: high <laughs> price to pay, so just get the ivy, Johnny. Just get the bloody ivy. Just get the ivy. Yeah, yeah. And the thing, just to note as well, that we really don't think about anymore and just how quickly we proceed with these customs is that it's always interesting to look who would collect the decorations mm. who would bring them to the house who would hang them when would you hang them would mm. you hang them on christmas eve would you hang them a week yeah. before was it the youngest member of the family or the oldest member of the family and then also interestingly what comes across from the um, academic work as well and also from the questionnaire that we have here is how would you dispose of them and mm. this was hugely detailed in the responses in that some considered it bad luck to throw them away mm. at the end of the festive season when you were taking them down uh, after the Feast of the Epiphany. But elsewhere in Europe, it was considered... So in Ireland, they would burn them, but actually in Northern Europe, for example, it was considered bad luck to burn them. Mm. Rather, you were to leave them um, outside or just gently throw them away. Because again, seeing them as a life symbol, to burn them was just an ill omen really for the year ahead see, see. and it's this whole idea as you were saying earlier about kind of building up this idea of fertility and luck for the season ahead mm. and people were very careful to observe those customs in, in respecting kind of the evergreens mm. that they brought luck to a house and you weren't to kind of undermine that luck then by ill-treating them.
1: Yeah it's a part of this the process of symbolic reasoning i guess these aren't just items or objects or plants that are coming at your home they're they are they have a secondary meaning a deeper meaning they're kind of they point to something else and that's the the sense of as you mentioned there as well like who collects them or at what time are they are they put up mm-hmm. and when are they disposed of the, these aren't just you don't just get it randomly at any time put it up and take it down You're like there's, this, there's a there's a kind of abstract framework that you have to work within and um, to to ensure that that, the, that this kind of symbol is given proper representation and that you don't undermine the force that it's going to manifest in, in your own house. Absolutely. Can I play a piece here from, from um, that references a lot of what you just described from, from Bill Egan? Perfect. The yeah. Midlands. This is collected by, by Jim Delaney. And it's a nice little piece where he describes uh, decorating the house and kind of preparations in advance of Christmas.
2: When you had all whitewashed, painted, cleaned on every bit in the house cleaned the next thing then, I'd go you get the holly then. Some used to get go mad to get the holly with the berries on. Yeah. More wouldn't pass any remarks than they put up any sort of holly. Yeah. And then if you couldn't get holly, they used to get old ivy leaves. I see. But very few would get ivy leaves, yeah. except where there'd be old people that had no one. Yeah, no. But, but where would you put the holly then? They used to put the holly then everywhere that they could get a sticky branch in. They'd put it around the rack right into the mugs, Round the dresser, over the fire, in the window, and round the lamp, and of those blessed picture in the house, that make a little cross of the holly and put it up over the picture. I, I made several of this. I see. Make a little cross, to see, the picture and of the holly, and put just hang it over the sacred heart. I see. And you put two little bits in one each side of the picture. I see. That'll be nice. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was grand to see it across Merida, that Yeah. Holly. I never saw it now, Bill. I must sketch it and make one of them. Oh, please. they're the kind of you see. Mm-hmm. <coughs> oh, Who used to go for the holly, Bill? Well, young people in the house, children used to go for it. It was as they got about here. You hadn't to go far for it at all, just across the river here in Bollywood. You could bring home a nice load of a day I well, at the present time now there's a holly tree growing here below and then the me field. I see. Well, that's only a young tree, we don't cut any it, we're letting it alone. I see. It's growing up in the side of the rain. Mm. Well then it's up the road here, you can get it up in the hills on your motor. The holly'll be left open and the twelve days will be over. I see. And after the twelve days then the holly'll be all taken down and burnt. I see. We used to go more to see the three holly blazes. Yeah, make a great blaze. The torch. Yeah.
0: So he would burn his holly.
1: He'd burn it. Yeah, that was the common. And again, I mean, you can see as part of that, although it might be bad looking, another place to burn it. It's also it's quite a specific, um, careful way in a sense to dispose of a symbolic item. Mm-hmm. That you maybe you'd bury something or you'd burn it, you don't just leave it wrapped by the wayside, you dispose of it in a very specific way with fire, which is a kind of you know life force in and of itself, or whatever, or often betokens life force. So you can see, despite the variability of these customs, that there's a kind of emotional or symbolic logic behind it that you can't just get the holly and just throw it out the window after the 12 day period. Uh, You have to dispose of it in a certain way so that it's correctly gathered and it's correctly disposed of because it's a symbolic item, it's not just. Um, a thing, a, just a kind of empty material heap of, of uh, greenery. Greenery, yeah. yeah. It's it's it points to something else, and like like, like you were saying, the, the, the especially Bill makes mention then of kind of the idea of holly with berries yeah. attached to it, that which flowers in midwinter when the world is asleep and the world is dead. Well, you want to incorporate that uh, as part of these celebrations for the return of of the sun and the return of um, or the promise, basically, of of, of, of abundance later on, basically.
0: And to touch on that point, one of the things I discovered that I'd never come across before was the Holy Thorn at Glastonbury. Oh, yeah. Have you heard no, about this? No, I hadn't. You
1: mentioned this yesterday, yeah.
0: Fascinating, because to me, Glastonbury means music festivals. But really, Glastonbury, um, in the southwest of England, it is kind of a renowned site of British pilgrimage. Mm. And not just in the musical sense, which surprised me because that was very much my association. But it's been, um, or it was a pilgrimage site um. A great pilgrimage site of the middle ages until the reformation dissolved it and ah, the, reformation. Ah, the reformation It all went downhill but um one prominent myth that's associated with glastonbury is this well character we'll call him for the sake of this legend saint joseph of arimathea who brought christian christianity it said to glastonbury and planted there a holy thorn hmm. so some of the legends vary sometimes he planted and um, the thorn but also there's an idea that he placed his staff on mm-hmm. the ground from which sprouted mm. this evergreen um holy thorn which blossoms in spring but then also interestingly as you were saying about this idea of blossoming in midwinter it blossoms on christmas day as well mm. and it's still a tradition that's observed annually i've kind of gone and looked it up and read a few articles about it and it's, they take it very seriously good they quite right we'd love mm. a bit of tradition and it's a calendar custom that's observed every year they cut a part of it they retell the story as Mm. again this kind of affirmation of tradition and the i suppose renewal of community ties i suppose in a way as well and then sprigs of it are sent to the queen each year Mm. apparently and it's been done for generations amazing but it's this idea that the holy thorn is very much a part of glastonbury's kind of vernacular christian culture Mm. and it still grows at Wary Hall Hill if you're ever there you're more than welcome I think to go and see it and um, just that you don't touch it because they get a bit and rightly so and rightly so I suppose that they get a bit temperamental if of you course. start ruining their natural heritage but it it's there it flowers um on Christmas but one of the interesting things was we were speaking I think in one of our podcasts before about the change in the calendar from the Julian calendar mm. to the Gregorian calendar um, and there was a period just as it changed I think in seventeen fifty two the calendar changed, and everyone was waiting on Christmas Day for it to bloom, and it didn't. Huh. It actually bloomed on the fifth of January, as if it was adhering to the old Christmas calendar. Yeah. And they were like, "Well, this is obviously
1: like the monks on Skellige." Yes, exactly.
0: So That's they're like, brilliant. "They're obviously, and um, this whole new calendar is uh, a load of cotton wallop but That's fantastic. Yeah, so this idea of the evergreen, and about the natural world and working with what you have mm. and the symbolism of that and fertility and growth in this midwinter festival. Mm. It's something that very few people would probably think about when they think about Christmas. It's all about the MS ads and oh, I know. But um so interesting just to bear those things in mind.
1: It's fantastic and actually the holly tree and attitudes of the holly tree in, in English tradition bear some relation to the nervousness with which um the kind of the schach or the the hawthorn or white thorn is treated as the notion of a fairy tree or a supernatural kind of mm-hmm. a tree with supernatural inhabitants. There are similar or are similar customs or traditions relating to uh, the cutting down of holly bushes and that you don't do that and, and I was reading even a piece from um, a woman in the 1980s and she was describing how they they had cut this down but they left it hidden in a laneway outside their house under other rubble or material so that people wouldn't see that they'd cut a holly bush down because there's a, rel- a general reluctance to kind of go near this tree and interfere with it in the same sense that um, that you find often in Irish tradition relating to the white thorn tree or the, the fairy tree, the tree that looks as though it hasn't been planted by a human hand, it stands alone in a field, this kind of thing. But um, that's fantastic, I'd, ne- I'd never heard about that, I didn't know about that at all.
0: And to finish up on that we have the ewe log. Yeah. which um, or block the knollick, which would have been um, very common in Ireland. This, it used to be a, a piece of a fir tree that would have been burnt at Christmas. And again, the idea of the ashes would be used for divination around this period as well, which is kind of a common motif mm. in, in Ireland. But yeah, a lot of kind of the natural world coming in to the interior home at Christmas. Mm. And one of the things I love, there's a reference here from one of the questionnaires on Christmas Eve from, this is from County Clare, where the gentleman writes, Chini more than Alec, about 5 pm or 6 pm, the, an enormous fire in the kitchen would be lit with a huge block of what he calls gouche, which mm-hmm. is um, fur, and the rosary would be said then. Christmas c- greetings would be exchanged after the rosary. But what I particularly love, usually, usual rosary and in brackets with trimmings. Oh, excellent. Said later on. So there's this um, idea of practical preparation for Christmas but there's also great spiritual preparation as yes. in the past that there would be a huge amount of rosaries and additional prayers said mm. at this time and people would be encouraged um rather strongly to attend mass regularly yes indeed yeah even those who very you know, rarely frequent the yes, doors of in, the church indeed, the, the the hardy usuals the they'd have to go <laughs> yeah exactly so, yes. a lot of practical and um spiritual preparations for Christmas
1: it's um it's a particularly interesting aspect of it. I mean, even Yule is is, is the other kind of major area from whence are received the majority of our um, of our Christmas customs and traditions as they manifest today. Um, I mean, like you mentioned the, you know, the, the the Yule log, and that has a particularly kind of old derivation and there are kind of references to it. Uh, but as well, I suppose the, there was the idea that this was a kind of fertility symbol that was kind of chopped down and burnt. And Yule, I, I thought that the initial reason that we had a kind of the 12 days of Christmas was an account of, the shift between the june and gregorian calendars mm. and that the date shifted and that's why uh, there were it turned into a kind of larger phase but it actually comes from from yule it was a 12-day festival um that was celebrated like, at, like a midwinter festival typically yule was understood really to to occur somewhere between november and january and there was no set kind of date as far as i'm aware for it but it was it was it um Håkon, the first the, the king of norway who christianized norway in as late as the 12th century, so it's much later than Ireland, so it was in the 5th century, whatever, I uh, uh, kind of assigned it to the, the, the more Christianized kind of date, which itself was set by Julian the First, the Pope in Rome, who set um, the 25th of December as the birth of Christ that would then be celebrated, which wasn't celebrated, there's no scriptural kind of basis for, for this celebration, but it was an attempt to incorporate these kind of pagan and pre-Christian traditions. But at Yule, there was... Um, there were the fertility rites and magic, there was the, the burning of the Yule log, a huge kind of log that was cut down from from a, from a tree, from the fir tree, as you mentioned. There were sacrifices made, and often to, to the kind of um, uh, the female mother spirits or, 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 or at, at the time. And so there was Mother's Night in in Germanic tradition on the 24th. Mm. That was the, um, the the festival that was observed. Uh, Bede, the, the medieval English historian, mentions that, and in the 8th century he talks about um, uh, mother's night celebrations and so this is the kind of the the, the indigenous midwinter festival observed by the historic germanic peoples it's connected then with votan with odin um who's the kind of the, the you know the, the leader of the wild hunt the kind of the um the master of the furies or whatever he was sometimes called um um yulnir or or yule father the yule father or, or yule one and so th- there was kind of these kind of connections in in um or, or celebrations in connection with this, this kind of midwinter festival. There's a fantastic quote um, from the, the Icelandic scholar Snorri Sturluson, who writes uh, in around the, the 11th or 12th century. He describes this, the kind of the, the Yule customs, basically. He says that it was the ancient custom that when sacrifice was to be made, all farmers were to come to the heathen temple and bring along with them all the food they needed while the feast lasted. At this feast, all were to take part in the drinking of ale also all kinds of livestock were killed in connection with it horses also and all the blood he goes and describes describe them, all the blood was smeared and sprinkled about the temple and the walls inside the walls outside on idols uh, and likewise on all of those present and then it says meat and, and animals and, and the meat that had been the animals that had been sacrificed their meat was boiled for feasting and blessings were made and toasts were drunk to the gods uh, but also to departed ancestors so you have a slightly more blood smeared version of the rosary occurring there and so far as spiritual preparation at a certain time mm. and a period of feasting and excess and divination and kind of fertility magic and so on and so i mean even for example the christmas ham as a kind of christmas food that's from from yule really? that that kind of is that incorporation in england i think it's even in parts of is it oxford maybe i could be incorrect but in england as far as somewhere they, they would eat um at you a pig's head not oh. just the, you know the pig is it the pig's head so this is kind of there's a symbolic aspect in it there's this something desert. in the
0: north as well about a boiled ox's head that i read
1: so that's i guess, I guess it's part of this kind of these yuletide celebrations again your christmas tide yuletide this 12 day period saturnalia Alias, this kind of week long period this midwinter solstice period that was also then that was looked down upon w- w- very kind of um um, again, there's often that tension between aspects of folk tradition and the formal church, of Christian church especially, yeah. where they try to kind of quash and quell these kind of these practices. But you have, say, um, you have the presence of, of Roman soldiers invading Britain and bringing with them the customs of Saturnalia. Mm. You have the indigenous midwinter festivals of the Germanic people celebrating Yule across Scandinavia and Iceland and Norway and, and England and so on and so forth. And so you have this kind of panoply and tapestry of... of Kind of pre-Christian pagan and and Italic and Nordic mm. um, customs in this this giant mesh that go together today that we we don't think to pick apart. Why Holly? No, why why the Christmas never. ham? Why the log? Why this one? Here? But they point back to so many disparate kind of um, uh, kind of expressions and, sy- and symbols and so on. But that point largely are, are are kind of born out of of nature and of the north. In particular, I suppose the, the the customs and traditions and reactions to being of the the northern peoples of Europe, basically mm. in, in many ways. But in, in um, the, the, the references to kind of to Christmas and celebrations of Christmas and the kind of orgiastic revelry and rioting that often occurred in the streets as well was looked upon very dimly by the by um, those of a more puritanical spirit. Um, in in sixteen fifty two, I think I think it was sixteen fifty two, the execution of Charles I, uh, Christmas was banned, and under under the protectorate that was when when Cromwell was the kind of the protectorate of, of the, the Commonwealth, um, Christmas was outlawed. As this kind of, yeah, just this kind of degenerate um, pagan feast that had nothing to do, nothing to do with kind of with, um, with scripture or Reformation or whatever that lasted maybe until sixteen fifty eight or fifty nine. I think when people just demanded that it be brought back, but the the descriptions of, of Christmas at that time in in England and so on were these kind of just orgiastic murderous revelry basically as opposed to kind of goodwill and it's not the kind of Dickens Christmas Carol. thing But um, that lasted then, that spread across to the to the the kind of the, the Plymouth brethren and New Englanders in, in America who banned Christmas for hundreds of years um and, and viewed it as this um this kind of totally um, awful and, and kind of pagan feast. I have a quote here from if I can find it um from a certain Reverend who who Where is he gone? Yeah, Captain Mayfair who in 1712 and an Xmas sermon, a Christmas sermon says, can you in your conscience think that your holy saviour is honoured by hard drinking, lewd reveling, and by a mass fit for none but Bacchus or Saturn? <laughs> right, so he's like, you know, this is kind of um, an awful kind of carry-on. And it wasn't until in the mid-19th century that the last kind of states lifted their ban on Christmas. And it was often through, through the kind of Sunday school reformers where they were trying to fill the pews by teaching children about... Um, Christian doctrine and so on, of the Protestant perspective, that they got them often to reenact the nativity. Oh. So that kind of nativity scene tradition comes from the Sunday schoolers um, trying to kind of uh, inculcate a sense of Christian tradition. A very in specific children. agenda. And it did, a uh, kind of proselytization and so on, but that was what kind of, um, uh, I suppose, broke the back of it in, in the US. That And Charles Dickens' of course, Christmas Carol in 1867, he had this mm-hmm. big tour of America, giving all these speeches and reading... Um, a Christmas Carol in these kind of packed theatres whatever, whatever the, which had a kind of huge popular impact in, in, the, in the manifestations of Christmas today but if you, if you look at the Christmas tree as a Germanic tradition the bringing in of Hollywood and Ivy as a kind of broader European tradition the, the use of mistletoe mistletoe ha- has long had these kind of uh, divinatory practices attached to it uh, medicinal practices attached to it it was associated with uh, the 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 Nordic pagan god Balder. He he was the most yes. beautiful of all the gods. And he was killed with mistletoe. Could,
0: and this is where Loki comes into it. That this was the only instrument he could use to kill Balder, yeah, yeah. son of Freya. Yeah,
1: he and was again, also honoured at Yule. Yes. Okay. So uh, and went from where we get uh, of course Friday Friday Friday. You know we've we have come and and her day Wednesday Thursday Thursday. Thursday you have the, these kind of. All of these echoes of the past reverberate in the present all around us. But if we can familiarise ourselves and make ourselves aware of them, then you begin to see,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, where, where they come from. And it's 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 a fantastic but a kind of overwhelming process, really, just this combination, all this symbolism um, and, and kind of, I would say, an artistry and beauty and wisdom ring that manifests at this time between the kind of evergreens, the thing of, of, of Mother's Night, uh, propitiation of the ancestors, fertility rights... Uh, prayer, feasting, excess and inversion of, of the social order and one of, of those kind of norms or whatever um, and that kind of symbolism, to, the light in the dark you know, that's, what this, that's what this is at yeah. this time I suppose um,
0: And that's a lovely way to bring us to our next point actually, light in the dark where we'll draw in on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day mm. and we might talk about the candles which are a huge aspect of the Christmases of yesteryear and again, as you were saying, bringing light to the darkness mm. and the symbolism of that. And so on Christmas Eve, it was a great tradition, as it still is. Do you, do you still yeah, do this? We do. Yeah. We do this at home, um, where we light candles in each of the windows on Christmas Eve. And we do it again on New Year's Eve, but it was something that was done on New Year's, or on Christmas Eve. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm picking up your call mm-hmm. It was something that was done on Christmas Eve, on Christmas night. They did it on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. They did it on Really, the, in no, no, this is just in, in across the country, it, depending on the questionnaires I was reading. It was something that was done in a number of nights mm. during the festive season. And sometimes it would be three candles for the Holy Family. Mm. Or sometimes you'd see references made to a candle being lit for each member of the family. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea of welcoming the Holy Family symbolically yeah, yeah. on the night when they were wandering to say that you're welcome here. There's There's, mm. a, there's a home for you here. And also some of the recollections in the manuscripts that we have here speak of it being a, a welcome to the, the ancestors and those who've passed away as well, hmm. that on Christmas Eve, when everything is prepared, the house is left tidy at night and the door would be left unlocked, <coughs> which I do not recommend you do now in modern yeah. Ireland, but everything would be left tidy, a meal perhaps, or food left out, and the door left unlocked for those who were looking for um, Soccer and comfort on mm. Christmas Eve night.
1: I have a piece recorded here, Patrick Fortune, um, material recorded from him, where he describes kind of singing of Christmas carols and so on and so forth. But also this this um, widespread tradition of leaving the candle in the window.
3: What's this well, you're going to? This was in the old place in in uh, Street. Yeah. And when we had the uh, used to have a crib, you, the brother used to get up a crib oh. and and electrify with, lect- or have it all filled with, with electric lights, mm-hmm. and the lights going in and out and stars at the back. Mm-hmm. And they usually every every Christmas Eve, we the family used to gather around the crib, and we used to sing uh, Christmas hymns. I dare say the Davis and, mm-hmm. and 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 Noel and and Silent Night and all the the uh, Christmas hymns. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a Christmas and we used to light the candle in the window. Used to? Yeah, you, you lit the candle in the window, big big candle we had, big white candle, usually that in the window. And we would, last at 12 o'clock at night, We on uh, uh, Christmas Eve, we used to have, sing uh, hymns around the crib. And then that, that morning then, the next morning, we used to go to First Mass in uh, 6 o'clock. I the so, First Mass, yeah. Why so early? And, oh yeah, well that was just the custom, you know, mm-hmm. it was the custom to get... First mass, sixty o'clock, mm-hmm. and what's the meaning of the candle in the window? Oh, it, it means it means our the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. the coming coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that's that's a question of The years, mm-hmm. having that, especially in the country too, yeah. in in the uh, the the houses, mm-hmm. in on um, uh, the the, the uh, wind is facing the road, you know, mm-hmm. s- showing the light of, 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 of the family coming coming into Bethlehem. I think it's a beautiful tradition. Oh, I love it. I, I like that it continues. It, yeah. yeah, same here. But it's he, um, sorry,
1: go ahead. Well, it's it's just like you said, It's just the, the beauty of the symbolism of it. I mean, you have, uh, the idea of these kind of uh, wanderers in the dark, the holy family, kind of Our Lady, Joseph, and so on, waiting or you know, looking for somewhere to go. But the idea that, the extending of a of a welcoming light, a light in the dark, uh, to kind of I don't know, illuminate the way. And even, you know, Patrick mentions it in that tape as well, it's, it's it's again, it's a symbolic component. You're not just lighting a bloody candle, it's it's something yeah. deeper to it or beyond it. There's a, there's a secondary meaning, which is the ultimate kind of function of this thing where the candle is placed in the windows facing the street, he says, that it's for everyone to see. It's a kind of public thing, whatever. And at this time, again, even relating to, you know, the return of the sun, that the light that burns in the dark, the sense of, of the victory of, of light over dark or life over death or truth over ignorance, whatever, this, this kind of idea manifest not just in Christian tradition. You have kind of Christ as viewed as uh, as the light of the world and so on. Um, but then in in the in with regards again the return of the the unquenchable flame of 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 sol invictus the unconquerable sun. Mm. This kind of the the symbolism of the light in the dark I think is um is something profound for, for that kind of I suppose speaks to a very fundamental kind of component of uh, of being in relation to being and kind of struggling but this kind of illumination in, in the midst of all that. And even the context of Christmas Eve, this is late on Christmas night, so before Christmas Day, which was typically known as Mother's Night in the Germanic and the pagan traditions. And you can see maybe that, you know, in the context of incorporating those traditions into the Christianised kind of framework and, and doctrine, that you have this idea of Our Lady travelling around at this time. And so again, there's that reference to kind of to, to the sanctity or the divinity of motherhood and mm. femininity at this time as well. And how that expresses itself so there's a kind of just this general tapestry of symbolism and, and a, a synthesis and a combination of these varying kind of symbols that have a deeper root in, in the natural world and in nature as it expresses itself at at this time but reveals to me you know, it kind of it reveals this symbolic truth tradition is synonymous with the kind of truth in that sense you yeah. know what I mean? and so you can do something as simple as lighting, lighting a candle in the window but it speaks to something far, uh, deeper. far deeper and it's it's, uh, it's just I think it's so beautiful as, as a kind of that's a symbol, but so many of these things are at this time. But, uh,
0: but I love on the 7th of January, it'll be doors locked, curtains closed.
1: Oh, good luck. Ring me before you come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a giant kind of bleak uh, January awaits, yeah. But for now, it's a kind of, it's, a, you know, wanderers in the dark are welcomed in, the door is open, mm. and there uh, there is a light that um, that never goes out to quote Morrissey. You never thought I'd quote Morrissey.
0: Oh, well, there's a first time for everything. We <sighs>
1: will have to edit that out.
0: But one of the things that I... Picked up on there from um, the tape was this idea of going to mass in the morning, and we were seeing this. We used to go to midnight mass mm. in Donegal, which hilariously we still go to, but it's now at eleven o'clock. Hmm. But we still call it midnight yeah. mass. But you would go in the morning. I always
1: went to the early mass in the morning. Yeah.
0: And critically, you didn't get to open your presents until no, you came a, back. It was
1: a custom in my house where we'd go to right up in the morning, off um, to the to the early mass, so maybe half seven or seven. Even, um, back to the house. My father would cook a fry, cook a breakfast. And after that, one got to rip into one's gifts. So I could never understand the uh, unbridled uh, kind of uh, joy of many friends just like up and into their Christmas. Absolutely. Like, no, 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 It has to be tempered by um, <laughs> all manners of early, hours of early mass, hours and hours of mass. Oh and then that, that was the thing for us. Yeah, the first mass and then back and then breakfast. And then,
0: self-control then was... Very admirable in your house, Janet. Indeed, well, I'm I not sure about that. was up but and out of bed at oh, four. Were you really? Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. It's just that sense of anticipation. Oh, it's so exciting. It's and wondering so exciting. if been, you had been... Yeah, know. I
1: remember just, you know, waking up and there's some little gift at the end of the bed or some, some little thing kind of in the night. This is often left at the end of our beds as children. we would know, be like, our parents oh, would leave some spot. Some things. disconcerting. Oh, no, it was great. It was so exciting. You'd wake up in the middle of the night like, ah, and there was some little kind of present there.
0: So Father Christmas is wa- wandering around the house?
1: Well, I suppose it was kind of, it, was, uh, it wasn't tempered not any sort of paranoia. It was a very benign and unpleasant scenario. Mm.
0: Well, uh, we're going to touch on the um, very famous Saint Nick mm. shortly. But um, before we do, although we take him for granted and await him anxiously each year, one of the great hilarities in the manuscripts was the idea of when he first came to Inish Boffin, and how he frightened the women folk there. And one of the this is actually one of our followers online who fo- who found this so a, a big, yeah, lovely. yeah it was lovely. So a big thank you um to her for unearthing this. But I'll just read it out quickly. And this is collected from Neil Duhi by Shen O'Hohe mm. in 1944. And it's in Irish um but it's this idea that Santa Father Christmas was not a phenomenon known in the 19 um or the early 20th century. So this is when he first came to inishboffin. No roll Santa Claus in the remash my hat and a haraby, Near Hulam a wahir and that the near be a in the Shanwench or Trettai. grow that had a haraby. We Easter and the land shaws <laughs> and arm, like a school a reg and a lanu. It narrow fockle, borlacu. It near umra and worthless if we the to a The jigger Hulish Why sort to and it's this hmm. lovely idea of the strange man coming down the chimney that's, that's just introduced by um, the local teacher and the old women of the island who'd never pro- left the that's island brilliant. and had never spoken English, wondering, oh my God, who's this strange yeah. man coming into the house? Yeah. It's hilarious that's because, incredible. again, St Nick is a very a, a new-ish idea, really. Yeah, in it? this
1: part of the world, yeah. I mean, the, the, the kind of, um, I suppose, St Nicholas of Myra has had like a lot of... Kind of um, dedication and devotion to him as a saint, uh, in this country and elsewhere. I mean, there's a, there's um, the church of Saint Nicholas of Myra on Francis Street in the Liberties in Dublin's inner city, which is a beautiful church. But he was known as um, Saint Nicholas the Wonderworker. For there was lots of kind of miracles attested to his intercession in tradition, basically. And again, then in in the kind of apocryphal sense of tradition, and the the folk religious expression. So apart from the canonical dictates of the church, he became associated with. Uh, with sailors, with children, and even with merchants, with repentant criminals. Even I think he was a kind of um, a kind of patron of basically. But he became associated with the idea of kind of secret gift giving, um, and he also became a patron saint of children. There's a story about um, there's a famine, and a butcher lures three children into his house, and he promptly butchers them all, and he has them in a barrel, and he's curing them to make them into pies, basically as you do. And so Saint Nicholas comes along, sees through this, and. Um, Punches the man and regenerates, restores, revives the children to their to, to life, and so it became associated with the kind of this thing of um, of of children, the protection of children in a sense, basically. But there was also another. There's a, another narrative told of of um, Saint Nicholas where uh, there is a poor man with three daughters, and he can't afford a dowry for either of them, for any of them, which would mean that they'd be kind of. You know, outcasts in society at the time, basically, are regarded as, as prostitutes or kind of the lowest of the low. So, this man is kind of greatly dismayed about this, and the story goes, or one of the variants at least, that that uh, the good saint, on the night before each of these girls come of age, he throws a purse full of gold coins through the window, for each of them to kind of to to so that they have a a, a dowry so they can have their rightful place in the kind of social hierarchy, whatever, and the father kind of cops onto this at the last. Um, Last time, of the, the, after, after you know it's occurred twice, and he waits, and so to kind of um, to get around this, Saint Nicholas drops it down the chimney, and she has a stocking hanging there until it falls into the stocking. This this kind of golden purse of coins. So you have references to motifs again of mm. the chimney in an early kind of uh, medieval legends about this saint um, and the stocking. You know why do we have a Christmas stocking hanging off to the front? what's that all about? You don't even think about these things often, True. but it has its its it's got kind of roots in this. Um, this kind of this figure of saint nicholas and um, this kind of was wandering around asia minor and, and turkey and egypt and palestine and so on and so forth but then in in europe becomes associated with this kind of miracle worker and patron saint of children and secret gift giver and again in the context of gift giving of saturnalia and the kind of liminality and the strange kind of period that manifests at this midwinter festival he's become a symbolic uh, uh, figure and then also with kind of uh, emigration to, to the United States then becomes kind of, as has happened in so many traditions, like with Halloween and the sound festivities, you have kind of emigration to the United States and then where those traditions take root and then they're kind of projected back. They're projected back in a variety of kind of um, uh, expressions into into modern kind of context as well. Um, but many of the celebrations around, around uh, St. Nicholas, I mean in Austria he travels around on the 5th of December. I think his feast date is the 5th or the 6th of December when he's when he believed to have died. But in, in Austria Um, the good saint travels around with the Krampus, who's this kind of malevolent figure. we've heard about him. And he has this kind of basket and he brandishes sticks at young children and he kind of frightens them or whatever. Uh, And then there are varying kind of songs sung that like Krampus is going to leave you alone this year because you've been good and Santa Claus is going to, or Saint Nicholas is going to give you these gifts and give you sweets or cakes or whatever. But there's that idea of um, punishing those children who are are bad and bold and, and then, rewarding those who are good, again. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, refer- with reference to types of behaviours that aren't usually condoned or don't usually kind of occur um, in, in the everyday context. So in Austria, this is called the Nikolausspiegel, this kind of uh, little dramatic kind of play, similar to something that we have, a much more kind of benign or innocent maybe version, um, well, a, a little bit anyway, to, to what we have in Ireland, the, the Mummers play in particular. But um, this this people would come in with mantles of straw and wearing huge antlers, and would have a kind of a large whip as the, this procession would move from one house to the next so you call in from house to house a mixture of these kind of demons and saints mm. um, entertaining the people there are in terrifying the children giving them little rewards and so on that's part of the the liminality of this kind of phase of the in-betweenedness of of christmas and the midwinter traditions and all calendar customs they they can be imagined as a kind of an access point or a hinge upon which the world turns and our perspectives all shift mm. but there's a huge amount of kind of a huge focal point or of of, um, of lore and custom and tradition, and symbolic um, expression that often finds itself in total opposition to what the normal modes of being are. So people are anonymously travelling from house to house or Again, in Ireland, we can look at the, the Mummers tradition where, um, or, or with the Wren boys on the 26th of December who go out in honour of St Stephen and so on, that you have these people wearing, men wearing women's clothes or women wearing men's clothes or um, there's debauchery, revelry, there's kind of intemperate speech, there's drinking, there's music and so on and so forth. But it's part of this wider framework where we, we break the ties that, that bind us in order to kind of strengthen and reaffirm them. But there's like a loosening of all the social kind of caste and hierarchy. You kind of just take the lid off the pot for a while. But then put it back on. Yeah, you do it in a controlled way, and people forget that. I think about you know the nature of traditional societies and conservative conservatism, conservatism of, of tradition that built into it is this kind of uh, subversive element. But it's built in at specific points, and it's used to reaffirm the overall structure. You can't have an endlessly um, subversive doctrine of your own culture, or whatever as you could be said today in a sense that that is the case in many ways. But that these instances, these breaks are 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 kind of they manifest in order to reaffirm. Um, the, the the structures and the ties that bind,
0: and we see that across Europe because <coughs> in the articles that we've been reading we see it in Newfoundland who hmm. have a very or had a very strong mumming tradition. Mm-hmm. We see it in Mexico in what they call the Posada time. Hmm. So again, this idea of going from house to house, these processions, these performances, we see it in Greece as well, where they had hmm. this period from the sixth to the of December to the twenty fourth called the Kalianda period. Yeah. Again, of Carol's going from house to house. we see it in Sweden with the festival of St. Lucia, and that's mm. on um, kind of begins the Christmas season on the 15th of December. And again, it's this idea of dressing up this person representing a, a symbol of light. Mm. And again, it's just this idea, as you said, of breaking away from the norm, undermining the, the processes and the systems, but all with the greater purpose of reaffirming them mm. later on, and mm. kind of beginning the new season.
1: Beginning again, yeah. I mean, it's it's worth maybe mentioning briefly as well in the context of Irish tradition. And um, apart from the the mummers' play, we also had the wren boys, and the wren boys would go around on the uh, on the twenty sixth of December, on Saint Stephen's Day, and Saint Stephen was regarded as the first Christian martyr, and um, who was kind of betrayed by the wren. It was said in certain traditions that that soldiers were looking for him, and that the wren gave away his hiding place, and he was subsequently stoned to death as, as martyrs are. And um, but the idea this day was that that young young men and boys would often travel around the hedges and something they'd catch a wren at this time Um, and they would go from house to house dressed in strange clothing and singing songs and so on and i suppose they would entreat the occupant of the house to give them give them money to bury the wren quote unquote this is kind of they go around brandishing a holly bush or a bush of some sort with a wren often dead and kind of tied to it or pinned to it whatever but the wren again it's this kind of combination and strange synthesis of christian and pre-christian or pagan traditions where the wren, in, in uh, there are references in Aesop's fables from around the 6th century B.C. It was a reference in Aristotle, I think, to, to this particular story of Aesop's that mentions the contest for the king of the birds. Mm. And all the birds uh, on the, in the world decide to have a competition to see who's king. Um, and the eagle, basically, is kind of soaring high above the rest. But the wren, the, the kind of treacherous wren, has tucked himself away under the eagle's wing. And when the eagle is at its absolute height, the wren pops out. And it's just like higher... And so was promptly declared the king of the birds, but he's then kind of punished for his uh, treachery as well, and that he can cons- said that he could never again kind of he has to he always has to exi- exist at hedge height. He can't really go beyond that. But the names for for the rain all over Europe are things like uh, Basileus or Winterconiget or Hedge King, Winter King, or just King. They the references this kind of, in Irish. It's strange that yeah. there's rolling and then the wren, and you know, they don't have this kind of reference to him, his kind of kingship, or whatever. Um, but this is this is a kind of again at, at this time you have the use of this kind of treacherous bird, but a kind of um, people going around loudly in the morning so saying seems they're from house to house, entreating the occupants for money, and sometimes if they didn't give them money, and um, they bury the wren in front of the in front of the um, uh, the house. It was an awful ill It was it, an ill Yeah, ahead? yeah. Uh, but if a small piece here that describes. The, the catching of the ran, the putting of them in this kind of in a jar, and then walking around the town from town to town, or from house to house, excuse me, in, in the townland. Um, and then he, there's a kind of the rhyme that's, that's kind of um, sung at, at each of the occupants of the house basically as these boys go around.
0: Ah, oh, brilliant. And uh,
4: then when St. Stephen's of the Day came, of course, we went three or four miles with the ran, and uh, you put him in the centre of a bush. You put them in the centre of a, of a piece of a holly bush, we went around the house, and uh, I, I never did it. But I knew lads, to, if people didn't give them money at the house, that they, they took the ran out of the jar of buried them in the ground. They put a spell on the people, a curse from the house. I never done that. But I knew fellas to do it. If they didn't get money at that certain house, there was a, a rhyme, they sang. The rand, the ran, the king of her birds, it seems the day as she was caught in the fur. Although she is little, her family is great. Rise up, my laddie, and give us a thread. My brogues are worn, my clothes are torn. Forty in the rand is three long days or more. Up with the kittle, a with the pan. Give me my money and let me be gone.
0: And to finish up on St Stephen's Day, it's worth noting that in Finland they have St. Stephen's Day, but called yeah. Tapani's yeah, Day. You mentioned that. What's that? I don't... Again, it's this procession of boys, we're told, that would have dressed up in straw and they would have had the Tapani figure of St. Stephen, um, the first martyr. And he would be either ride on a horse or be pulled in a sleigh, pulled by a horse. Um, and they'd visit houses and perform a song and dance.
1: Seriously? Yeah. A little effigy of, of the. Of, of, of St. Stephen. T- That's yeah.
0: And again, it's fascinating that this. They have a ballad, the ballad of St. Stephen, or the ballad of the Song of Tapani, sorry that they call it, that apparently was influenced by Brit or English tradition. Hmm. And again it ties in with this idea of St. Stephen taking or having the is it the Scandinavian god Frey? Yeah, he was associated with a certain deity. Is it, yeah. Yes. So I think it's, again, that idea of superimposing a very old idea onto this newer St. Stephen hmm. and the god of fertility and his association with horses, which in Finland we see them being, or they would have traditionally been raced and sacrificed to appease Frey. And now they continue to have this link with St. Stephen hmm. in that he would ride around on a horse or be... Pulled in a mm. sleigh by a horse, and all the artwork and the iconography of St. Stephen's Day in Finland has this very strong association of the horse as being the one who sees the first star to tell St. Stephen that Christ was born. Amazing. Yeah, really It's again. incredible
1: to think, you know, when people think about, oh, kind of Christianity did paganism in and so on and so forth. P- paganism, it kind of it peeps out from behind so many aspects of Catholicism in particular, you know, mm. in the saints that become. Uh, that that take through all these deities and that kind of the synthesis of these things, these energies carry on. They, these echoes reverberate and they carry on. The symbolism maintains itself, and that it's, it might be kind of not clearly known by people might be kind of ignorant in many ways of these traditions or the, or their deeper meanings or origins, um, but these kind of forces of these 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 deities and and you know, pagan figures and so on aren't aren't gone. But the those living waters still run through often the worship of of, uh, of saints and, and other figures who, who manifest in, in popular tradition. And aside from then, the, the Wren boys on the 26th um, of December on St Stephen's Day and, and Boxing Day and so on, um, the, the the mummer's play was a huge part of the, kind of the Christmas tide festivities. And this is something that's still practiced, as is the Wren in many parts of Ireland, but the, the, the mumming tradition, which comes from, um, I think it's old French, like miming, you know, to mime. A mummer could be an masker or... Um, somebody in disguise basically. But there's a kind of hilarious play that would that would enact in a kind of mock battle between a variety of characters. Um who would you have you know, Cromwell would often feature, Prince George, St. Patrick. Uh, St. Patrick, um Beelzebub, the Big Turkish Head. Knight. The Turkish champion, the Turkish Knight, uh, Big Head, uh, Dilly Doubt, Johnny Funny. It's this amazing kind of raucous, slightly um macabre, kind of grim and very boisterous um and violent kind of mock play, where these figures are introduced one after the next. Uh, the Doctor, of course, is the main character as well. The hero comes in, the champion comes in, uh, he's slain by his opponent. The Doctor comes out and he, he pronounces a kind of um, a rubbish nonsense magic yeah. over the hero, who then he revives. The champion goes on to fight his opponent, he's victorious. And then uh, Johnny Funny often goes around to collect the money from a jar. And then there's music and dancing and singing. And that music often would be, or the the money would often be gathered up from that, um, and used to kind of put on the mummers' party, and um, that would take place that and uh, that people then would kind of generally assemble and attend to. But they'd call in from house to house. They'd burst into the houses, making raucous noise and so on and so forth. And as, again, it's kind of the breaking of the normal ties, mm-hmm. but part of that broader European tradition of kind of house visits, of Christmas visits between the Nikolauspiel in Austria, um the the mumming scenario, the Tapani that you mentioned of, in in Finland. Uh, even in the Saturnalia, there's a kind of case of of travelling from house to house and and that sort of uh, manifestation is one of the key components of um, of this kind of Christmas tide win- midwinter folk tradition.
0: And we should say mummers are known more in the north of Ireland,
1: and the east. and the, yeah. yeah,
0: whereas it, wren Boys are more to the south. Yes, yeah,
1: and in Munster and so on, and and so the mumming traditions would be would be about a borrowing from from uh, English and British kind of tradition. This I, isn't- you see some of those figures like Prince George and Cromwell mm. or it might be in England say Prince George against the, the dragon as the opponent but then in Ireland it might be St. Patrick versus Prince George. It's, it, there's an adaptation. I mean in more recent mumming um, festivities you'd see people like Saddam Hussein or George Bush or, or Tony Blair. Of course yeah because it just points and, and to these kind of mock figures but there are hilarious references you know, to the Battle of, of Waterloo and uh, battles in Flanders and Prince George talking about, um, beating the Dutch here and there, and the Turkish champion coming. So you have these kind of, you know, mid nineteenth century kind of little rhymes about these kind of characters, uh, as they they go about their business in this kind of uh, semi maniacal little play.
0: Approach, but we see when we're digitizing the scrapbooks, I've kind of I've been going through one recently, and mummers are appearing a lot, and it's this idea as you were saying that it's a masking tradition, mm. so it's not necessarily always associated with Christmas because there are references in the scrapbooks of competitions, kind of mumming competitions throughout the year Mm. where they would put on shows but at Christmas there was a particular I suppose script that was associated with Christmas because Father Christmas would appear Yes. and um, a hugely popular tradition. Indeed,
1: yeah. I have maybe a piece to end with uh, as our treat from the archive from the mid-1980s the Eaterney Mummers in in County Fermanagh um, who are kind of a troop, and there's a four and a half minute a quite hilarious kind of piece of them as they go about introduce themselves um, and then kind of begin to, to engage in the sing and dance and, and revelry of Christmas time.
0: Well, we shall leave our listeners with just the best festive wishes. Indeed. And we'll see you in the new year. Michelle,
1: we shall. We have a- to you. bid <laughs> yo Saturnalia God you Merry Christmas.
0: Good Féle. Gideiraché. We'll see you in 2018, hopefully. Happy holidays.
1: Delighted. Delighted. Good buzz. Right. Gonna go over an air, I'd say. Yeah, but sure, maybe but for it's Christmas, it's alright. Happy Xmas, little Christmas lovers, and all. Come on, come on, here
5: comes my end for the Christmas. We'll eat just all the very best bits in the right new year. We'll full it the money and burn full the beer. Room boys, room girls, room to rain. We'll show you some activity about the Christmas time. The next of young, the next of age. the liquor of the work of the acting Anastasia, you didn't believe the words i say. Come on in, Oliver Cromwell, and clear the way. Here comes I, Oliver Cromwell, as you may suppose, I conquered many nations with me long copper nose, I made the French to tremble and the Spanish for to rue, and I bet the jolly Dutchman on the plains of Waterloo. If you don't believe what I say, Edwin Jack Straw, he'll clear the way. Here comes I, Jack Straw, such a man you never saw. I took the devil through a rock, through a rail, through a mouse, and wheel. Through a bag of pepper, through a miller's through a huge chained boom. Such <coughs> him all is never known. You don't believe the words I say enter in Green Knight and he'll soon clear the way. Here comes I, Green Knight, with my machine gun here to fight. My head is made of wire than my body's made of steel. My bitches are made of hardware, and any time I are at Batlano, I'm ready for the field. You don't believe the words I say. After him, Prince George, and he's the other way. Here comes I, Prince George, from England, I have came. I fought in France, and I fought in Spain. I don't give a damn, I'll fight again. If Ireland's right and England's wrong, where's the man before me, Stan? I'm the man before you, well, who gone. are you, sir? I'm the Turkish champion. Where are you from, sir? I come all the way from Turkey, I'm here to fight to you, sir. Fight your sword. Sir. Ah. Ah. Oh, friend, oh, friend, what have you done? No, You've just been playing my only son. He challenged me for the fight with my bright sword. I cut him right. and mm-hmm. That's why he's lying on the floor tonight. Oh, ah, where's the doctor to be the fight? To do this man that lies on the ground. Here comes my old Dr. Brown, right? The best old duck to be found. Have you done something? Have you got problems? Yes. Very bad what's, happened, what's happened? Project accident here. Before you start, what do you need to hear? I can cure all plagues. the plague within the plague without the palsy or the gout. If there's nine devils in it, I can knock ten out. Well, that's not blood going. Yes. Where do we see Did you, the you use a plaster of cases yeah. like this, Doctor? <laughs> it's a bad case now. He's close to steps. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh. i use the roo, the crew and the filly, the fee and the horse blood of a bum bee. The oil of a handbook, and the sweat of a tough bank, and the goose's leg, and the wine duck's egg, and the heart blood of a cold potato. Yeah. All these things mixed together, put into a bladder and stirred up with a green jack's feather. You rub that on him, hot and cold, as hot as he can throw, and you don't have a cured man before day, I ask no pay. Oh, you get your pay, Doctor. Don't be worrying about it. Well, you said that before, and I didn't get it. Oh, but it's as good as one in the bunk, oh, Doctor. Oh, have you do. I have a little bottle here in the waistbands of my breeches called Hocus Cumpocus, the Isle of Champion. Raise up dead, man, and fight again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no. Yeah. yeah. Ah, uh, once there was dead, but there him alive. God bless the wee to the made me so eh? And if you don't believe these words, I say, after an old baggy bump, he's out there. He's the other way. You've got to die with a baggy bump. And over my shoulder, I shall be as But in my hand, I'm tripping I think myself, a funny on. You, know. you don't believe the words I say. Have to red big head and he'll lead the way. Here comes I, I have not come, yet. big head and little wit. The head is big my body small. I'll do my best to please you all. If you don't believe the words I say, old Hector lead the way. Here comes I, I'm Hector. My Hector, the devil's sister's son. And if I could get an old doll about four score and ten, damn it, I'd bring her for a bit of a run. And if you don't believe the words I say, enter in devil doubt, and he'll soon clear the way. Here comes my devil doubt. If I don't get money, I'll sweep you all out. Money I want and money I crave. If I don't get money, I'll sweep you to your grave. And if you don't believe the words I say, enter in friendly funny, and he'll clear the way. Here comes I, we fairly funny. I'm the man, collect some money. All silver, no brass, bad money, not pass. I have a big jar on under my arm, a couple of bob will do no harm, and after that, your pleasure. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.